Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Grace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Progress in the Treatment of Myelodysplastic Syndromes, or MDS. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Servier Pharmaceuticals, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have many people on the program today. We have over 200 participants. You come from mostly the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of uh, people from um, international countries, from Austria, Canada, Denmark, Poland, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So it is a global call as well. Um, and um, I really would like to just be sh welcome all of you to this call today. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Ruben Messa. Dr. Messa is Executive Director, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson. Mays Family Foundation Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, Mays Cancer Center, and NCI Designated Cancer Center. Dr. Messa will be addressing an overview of MDS in the context of COVID-19 and its variants diagnosing and aging, and current standard of care, and the role of clinical trials to increase your treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa. Well, Dr. Messner, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here uh, on this call today. This is a wonderful program, and we hope that it'll be a great resource for patients out there looking to learn more about myeloid dysplastic syndrome. Uh, also, a uh, appreciate the, the wonderful panel that you've assembled today. So the myelodysplastic syndromes is a term that refers to a related group of bone marrow diseases that we believe are a type of a chronic leukemia, where the bone marrow is, one, making cells that it shouldn't be making, and this is having a negative impact on the ability of the bone marrow to function. <clears throat> the bone marrow creates the red blood cells, the white blood cells, and the platelets in our blood. With the red blood cells carrying oxygen from our lungs to the rest of the body, that is the majority of the cells in our blood. The white blood cells that help us to fight infection, it can be involved with inflammation, and the platelets which are involved with the clotting of the blood. All of these cells grow and in the bone marrow, and they are all linked with the cells in the bone marrow that we believe are the seeds of the, the bone marrow, or what we call the stem cells within the bone marrow. We believe MDS, or moderate dysplastic syndrome, to be a disease in those stem cells. Now, I mentioned that it is a type of a chronic leukemia. When I use the term leukemia, it is a term that can sometimes create confusion. It sometimes can create angst. What we mean by leukemia is, again, technically a cancer of the bone marrow. Now, this behaves very differently 
than cancers like breast cancer or colon cancer or others. But it is an accurate reflection that it is a disease, it's a serious disease, where the body is making cells it shouldn't be otherwise making. Now, it is different than what we call acute leukemia. Now, when I say the word leukemia, people frequently are thinking of acute leukemia. In acute leukemia, we have the bone marrow uh, really not functioning very well at all. We think that the stem cells in the bone marrow <clears throat> are largely no longer producing the cells that we need. It's like an assembly line where somebody put a dropped something in the middle of the assembly line so it's no longer producing the cells. It ends up building up cells that we don't need, early cells called blasts, but we don't make the red blood cells, the white blood cells, or the platelets. <clears throat> so in acute leukemia, it can be very life-threatening. People can be very ill. And the blood counts tend to be incredibly low. Now, why I bring up any of this is mild dysplastic syndrome is quite a variable disease, but one thing that it can do is progress into acute leukemia. Now, how do we judge how an individual with myelodysplastic syndrome is affected? First and very importantly, we judge, one, what is the impact on the blood counts themselves. Patients can have different de degrees of severity of myelodysplastic syndrome, and we'll get around to how we stage it or how we predict its aggressiveness in a moment. But first we judge, was well, someone anemic? Are they severely anemic? Is the anemia so severe they need transfusions? Are the white blood cells lower than normal? Are they so low that there's risk of infection? Are the platelets low, or are they so low that there is significant risk of bleeding? So there's quite a variability in terms of how severe the MDS is for a specific patient, depending upon how low their blood counts are. Second, we judge the disease based on how close or how far it is to acute leukemia. It can be a spectrum, and we judge that in part based on the number of blasts in the bone marrow biopsy. We diagnose the disease with a bone marrow biopsy. A pathologist looks under the microscope, lets us know that the diagnosis is correct. Usually the bone marrow has been done because the blood counts are low. And they give us a variety of information, including whether the earliest cells in the bone marrow that normally are less than 5%, the blasts, are increased. Greater than 20% blast in the bone marrow is what we use to define acute leukemia. So the closer someone is to that 20% number, the greater concern we have that the disease will turn into acute leukemia and that it will be life-threatening. <clears throat> Finally, we judge the disease based on information about the genes or the genetics of the disease that your doctor assesses in two ways. The first are through a technique that we call chromosome analysis, where they look at the genes in aggregate in the chromosomes and look where there's any changes in the structure of those chromosomes. 
the pattern, if there are changes in those chromosomes, can give us a sense of one, is the disease likely to be more aggressive? Is it more likely to change to acute leukemia? There are certain genetic changes that may predict that certain therapies might be beneficial. <clears throat> now, Dr. Messer asked me to address the issue of COVID. What do we know about COVID and MBS? Well, first, not all MBS patients are the same. Some have a more compromised immune system than others. Some might be at greater risk of infections. Some may be less at risk. We definitely recommend first that you speak with your doctor about the appropriateness of both vaccination and appropriate boosters. And in most cases, your doctor is going to recommend that those are important ways to try to protect against COVID. Now, there are times that individuals may not, depending upon the severity of their disease, have an optimal response to the vaccine, meaning you receive the vaccine, you're not harmed by getting it, but the amount of antibodies or protection that you get may be more limited. There have been some individuals that we have done other approaches to try to protect them against COVID, including a type of injection called Evasheld that basically injects the antibodies themselves in a way for you to be protected against the, the disease. COVID is certainly less frequent in our society now, but it has not gone away completely, and it still can be serious, particularly if you are not vaccinated. So certainly suggest speaking with your doctor regarding that. Now, when we treat mild asphastic syndrome, we fundamentally have two different treatments. One is a very aggressive approach that can be life-saving called stem cell transplantation where, or bone marrow transplantation, where individuals receive treatment to largely clean out the bone marrow and receive the bone marrow from someone else. This can cure an individual facing this disease, but it is really quite complex and can be life-threatening. The other approaches we have involve medicines to try to improve low blood counts, uh, help individuals live longer, help individuals live better. Now, how do we decide between these things? First, we start by getting an accurate sense of how life-threatening the MDS is for the patient who is afflicted. And there's complex scoring systems that physicians use looking at blood counts, looking at the blast in the bone marrow, looking at the chromosome changes, and even looking at additional individual genes that we can now assess to give a sense of is the disease lower risk or higher risk. <clears throat> now, how do we treat the disease? Well, first, with lower risk disease, we determine first, does it need treatment at the current time? Is there significant anemia? And if there is significant anemia, we have treatment guidelines on a national basis that recommend a series of medicines for your doctor to consider. Is the anemia giving you symptoms? Is it severe enough to require transfusion? There's both medicines that are injections that we consider, such as erythropoietin stimulating agents <clears throat> for appropriate patients, individuals that have specific genetic changes like the deletion the fifth chromosome might receive a medicine called lenalidomide, 
individuals in a variety of circumstances may receive a new medicine called lisbatercept, particularly if they have different subtypes of MDS that are more responsive to that particular medication. Those that have an increase in cells in the bone marrow called ring sideroblasts, those that have a genetic change called SF3B1. <clears throat> There's other medicines in development that may potentially improve low-risk MDS or improve anemia that my good friend and colleague, Dr. Kamraji, will mention in a moment. Higher-risk MDS refers to determine whether we are moving more toward a stem cell transplant, and if so, should we receive therapy ahead of time? The therapies that we have that are approved include two therapies that have been around now for several years, but that can help delay movement toward acute leukemia and improve low blood counts. Two medicines called azacitidine or dacitabine that are both given uh, intravenously or subcutaneously. <clears throat> There's also now a new medicine that is a oral form of decidabine that is given with a second medicine that allows you to take it orally that certainly can be considered. There are times we will use high-intensity chemotherapy prior to a stem cell transplant. Now, our therapies with medicine, they can improve things. They may help individuals live longer. They may help to improve anemia. They may help to delay the movement toward acute leukemia, all of which are beneficial, all of which have helped many patients during the careers of Dr. Kamraji and I. However, we know that we're not yet where we want to be. We want to be able to cure MDS, and we want to be able to have our medical treatments, uh, which are helpful now, be even more helpful in adequately controlling the disease for long periods of time or even indefinitely. <clears throat> How do we get to such medicines? First, a lot of efforts with research and science supported by the National Cancer Institute, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the MDS Foundation, the AEMDS Foundation, and many others all working in concert. And two, and very importantly, clinical trials. Clinical trials are where we use new approaches compared to standard approaches to see how we can better impact the disease. They are critical for us making a difference. And in a disease like MDS, you have to view clinical trials as a key part of the options that we have available to us. We're always trying to see how we can further improve things into the future. Clinical trials, in short, are a structured way for us to try new treatments. They are situations where you are in the driver's seat. So it's a way to receive a new therapy it's given at a center, they monitor you closely, they observe you for response. At any point, you can decide that the clinical trial is something you no longer wish to be participating in because of your own choice, side effects, or other difficulties. But it's a critical part, and it's through clinical trials that the therapies that the next speaker will tell you how we help to further advance our options in myelodysplastic syndrome. And with that, I thank you for being here, and I will allow uh, hand the call back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Messner. That was really outstanding, and just a wonderful 
wonderful way to start the program today, lots of information, and really you set the stage for the entire program today. So thank you so much, so very much, as always. Um, just outstanding. And our next speaker is Dr. Rami Kamrahi. And Dr. Kamrahi will um, is senior member and professor of oncologic sciences, vice chair, malignant hematology department, Moffitt Cancer Center. And Dr. Kamrakshi will address new and emerging treatment approaches, tips to manage treatment, treat, to manage symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort and pain, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kamrakshi. Thank you very much again for this uh, introduction and for the invitation it's to talk to our patients. And uh, thank you, for Dr. Mesa, for setting the stage for me. So as Dr. Mesa said, I think uh, we've made uh, large progress in understanding MDS. So I always tell my patients that in the last 10 years, probably we understand the past 100 years, thank, thankful to new technologies, integration of molecular testing, and so forth. So we really have understanding of the biology of the disease. Uh, we have better tools now to assess the risks of the disease, and hopefully those are translated to better treatment options. Um, now, in terms of, of management or like what's new on the horizon, uh, as Dr. Mesa alluded, so first I think we had two uh, new drugs approved uh, for MDS, and it's important to uh, state the fact that those two drugs were the first two to be approved in the past 10 years. So for 10 years, we didn't have any new options for our patients. And now we have two new drugs uh, that we can use or add to the options of therapy we have. The first one is Lispatercept, and that's a, a drug uh, that will enhance red blood cell production. It's uh, an antibody, an injection given every three weeks that uh, promotes erythroid uh, cell development or improves anemia. And it's used particularly, or the FDA label is for patients with a subtype of MDS called Mars plastic syndrome with ring fibroblast. And it's now available for our patients. Obviously, there are ongoing options to explore more of the benefit of this treatment, not just to that subtype of MDS. There are trials looking at combination with other agents, such as erythroid stimulating agents or linalidomide. The other drug that got approved and maybe was timely during the COVID era is the oral decycidine that also, also Dr. Mesa discussed briefly. So this is similar to a drug that we've used for more than 10 years, uh, decycidine, which is a hypomethylating agent given IV. Now we have that as an option as a pill uh, that can be given at home. And it's uh, primarily bioequivalent or so similar to IV decycidine. It's interchangeable. And uh, the results of the efficacy is similar. Uh, it doesn't, you know, obviously remove the need of uh, monitoring for uh, side effects and checking blood count. Uh, but the patient can take those pills at home five days in a row, um, then have their counts checked weekly at the beginning. But once they're responding, the frequency of uh, office visits uh, are way less. Uh, so this is, again, during the COVID era. 
had been really uh, useful to try to minimize patients' visits to the office. And one can envision in the future that basically we will have, you know, uh, a total regimen of combination of therapies that are all given orally as pills for the patient. So as we move forward, obviously, uh, we think of what's on the horizon or what other options do we have. So first, in the lower risk, so as Dr. Mesta mentioned, when we see patients with MDS, I always, you know, go through three steps in my mind. The first is I want to establish the diagnosis, confirm the diagnosis. There are things that mimic MDS, look like MDS, so we want to be sure 100%. Then we risk stratify the patients, looking at some disease features, how bad are the blood counts, the percentage of leukemia cells, the cytogenetics, as mentioned. And at the end, we approach the patients either as a lower risk group or a higher risk group. In the lower risk group, our approach is really to alleviate the low blood counts and improve the symptoms that are resultant of the low blood counts. In the higher risk disease, we try to be a little bit more uh, proactive. We start thinking of more intensive treatments, consider something called allogeneic stem cell transplant. So in, in the lower risk MDS, uh, some of the efforts are first is really to understand the natural history. We are starting to understand more uh, the risk features, even in somebody who we call lower risk, and maybe we'll start approaching those as a higher risk, offering them treatments like allogeneic stem cell transplant. Uh, some of the treatments we use currently, like hypomethylating agents, we always borrowed from the higher risk that we use them for five or seven days. We have more and more studies now looking at abbreviated course of therapy that maybe in the lower risk we can have three days uh, of those uh, regimens rather than five or seven days. We just finished uh, through the MDS consortium in the United States a large study comparing five days to three days. Hopefully we'll see the results of that end of the year and that may make the treatment easier for patients in the lower risk. There are also some, ag some agents we use in certain circumstances uh, where the platelets are low, so patients are thrombocytopenic. Uh, those are available in practice, and some of them are in, in research. Uh, there is a other drug that just finished a phase three or finishing a phase three trial called Intelistat. Uh, this is a drug that inhibits an enzyme called telomerase. Uh, there were phase one, phase two trials tested in patients with lower risk MDS that are transfusion dependent or anemic. And the drug is also being tested. Actually, I'm moving forward in, in a disease similar that's dear to Dr. Mesa and myself in treating patients and trying to improve the outcome called myelofibrosis. So the, 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 the drug is tested in both. Uh, so Imtelistat in lower-risk MDS in the phase one, phase two trial uh, was shown to have promising activity where almost 40% of the patients became transfusion independent, not needing any blood transfusions. And one-third of those patients had durable responses where that lasted for more than a year. It's an injection given once a month intravenously. Uh, so, again, in a way, convenient for the patients as, as a schedule. Uh, it does have some side effects, obviously, lowering the blood counts, namely developing neutropenia and thrombocytopenia uh, during the treatment, which usually resolves by the end of the cycle. So now this drug is finishing a phase three, and hope, we are hoping that the results will confirm what we saw in the original studies in the phase one, phase two, and that will become an option for uh, our patients uh, as well. Uh, there is another drug being tested called Roxadistat. That is a drug approved actually in some uh, countries in the world for anemia of renal failure. Uh, it also stimulates red blood cell production. 
And similar to Lispatercept, uh, there are newer generation of Lispatercept drug uh, that are being tested in phase one, phase two. Again, all of those are injections to improve, you know, the anemia. So at least two drugs in advanced uh, stages in the lower risk MDS. Now, in the higher risk MDS, uh, where the backbone had been historically always using those hypomethylating agents, either azacitidine or decitabine, and thinking of transplant, uh, we definitely are trying to move the bar there. So there are at least three drugs currently in phase three in that setting uh, that are tested. And again, phase three means the last step for the FDA to look at those drugs and approve them. In phase one, we test the safety of the drug. Phase two, is there enough efficacy to proceed? And phase three, we are randomized, which is the last step required for drug approval. So one drug is called Benitoclax. This is a drug actually approved now by the FDA for acute myeloid leukemia. And for anybody who cannot get intensive chemotherapy for acute myeloid leukemia, had become this standard of care. So we are you know, trying to explore that in patients with MDS uh, in combination with hypomethylating agents. And the first look in the phase one, phase two trial, it does look promising, increasing the response rate, uh, overcoming some of the uh, disease features that are known to be resistant to azacitabine or decitabine alone, uh, uh, maybe a very good bridge to take patients to transplant. And sometimes even when we are losing the response to azacitabine, when we add venetoclax, we can see some activity. Uh, so it is now in phase three. There is a study called Verona study that's looking at the overall survival as well as the responses, and hopefully again will translate to a positive result that will make the drug available for all our patients. With the addition of venetoclax, it does require a little bit more monitoring because we get a little bit more decrease in the blood count at the beginning. So in the first month, the blood counts will decrease more than even what we are used to with the hypomethylating agent. So it needs frequent monitoring. We repeat the bone testing at a month on, on those medications and assess the response. Uh, and sometimes we have to back off the dosing of those medications. Sometimes patients have to go on antibiotics to prevent infection. Uh, but again, uh, the, the first look looks promising in terms of efficacy. The second drug that's in a phase three trial is a drug called migrillumab. This is an antibody that blocks a signal in the body called don't eat me signal. So some of the cells will express receptors or antennas that prevent part of the immune system to uh, engulf those cells. So this drug will block that don't eat me signal and allow the macrophages, which is part of our immune system, to engulf or kill the leukemia or MDS cells. And again, it is being combined with hypomethylating agents. It had gone through phase one, phase two, and now in phase three. The map has been shown to double the response rate to hypomethylating agents. Uh, half of the patients are achieving complete response. And again, it seems to be agonistic of any bad mutation. So even patients that have abnormal mutations that usually known to be resistant to hypomethylating agents, it seems with this combination we are able to overcome uh, that. Uh, the drug has side effects of some hemolytic anemia, which means destruction of the red blood cells in the first uh, round or two uh, that usually resolves uh, subsequently after that. So again, this is in, in phase three. The th third drug uh, is called tabatinumab. Uh, this is again a immune, uh, myeloimmune therapy. Uh, it targets the uh, leukemia stem cells, but it also brings some of the T cells, which are part of our immune system, 
to engage or fight those leukemia cells. And sabatinumab is also in phase one, phase two, and, and going into a phase three trial. So again, advanced in the management. And in the uh, preliminary look, uh, it does look that it leads to a durable response. So when patients go into a complete response or rather responding to the treatment, it seems that the uh, responses are longer or more durable. So again, three very promising uh, drugs uh, in phase three and that we hope will translate to approval of drugs uh, and improve the outcome for uh, our patients. Now, sometimes when the high commutating agents that are our backbone for treatment stop working, uh, after the HMA, like high commutating agents failure, uh, we don't have many options. So there is a lot of studies looking at that situation where, you know, we repeat the bromomal testing and the evaluation and it's almost important to repeat this uh, gene mutation testing. There are certain abnormalities, which we call them gene mutations. Those are the mishappenings that happen in the bone marrow that contributes to the MDR. And some of them are targetable. And there are trials exploring some of those agents. For example, there is a mutation called IDH1 or IDH2 mutation. Uh, and there are drugs approved for AML for targeting that, a drug called enacidinib and a drug called uh, Evocidinib, those again are drugs used and approved in AML, and we are trying to use them in MDS after hypomethylating agents, and indeed there are trials showing activity, so we are trying to pursue the last step of trials to get those drugs approved for patients. Sometimes patients will have a leukemia-like mutation called SPLIT3, so also we have drugs to target that. So in summary, a lot of clinical trials ongoing. Uh, hopefully, we translate to benefit. We always encourage our patients to enroll in clinical trials. I always tell my patients that it's not ethical to promise better results on trials, but most of those trials have a solid uh, a scientific rationale to test those drugs. Most of those drugs are, you know, uh, uh, been tested for safety previously. And in, in MDS, many of the cases, you know, rarely the patients will be on placebo. Like everybody will be getting the standard of care like hypomethylating agents, but half of the patients will get the other additional drug and the other half will still be getting the hypomethylating agents. That's a common question I get asked by my patient. So again, be in the look. Hopefully we'll be able to get more options for our patients. Uh, and we are starting to think of a total therapy approach, even for patients that go to transplant. After that, we have some medications that we can consider for maintenance. Uh, so again, I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to change the landscape of treatment and the outcome for our patients with those novel agents. Now, in terms of other topics I want to cover is really managing the symptoms and the adverse events uh, for, those, for those diseases. It's very important to have that discussion with the treating team because many of those treatments actually don't work as fast as we would like them to work. And many of those treatments actually at the beginning will worsen the blood count before improvement. And there is obviously symptomatic management for many of the symptoms that are resulting from MDS. So obviously the main problem with MDS is having low blood count. So patients that are anemic will feel tired, short of breath, palpitations. We sometimes do blood transfusions to alleviate that. And sometimes when those treatments kick in, we are dependent on blood transfusions. So it's okay for that. There is no magical cutoff of when we should transfuse blood. Every patient feels those different based on other medical problems. Uh, so, uh, but most of the time, if the hemoglobin, which we measure the anemia degree with, is less than seven, then we transfuse patients. Uh, some patients, if they have profound uh, low white blood cell count, the risk of infection, 
we may use antibiotics to prevent infection. Uh, now, patients with MDS always will feel fatigue. That's part of the disease, unfortunately, that sometimes could be discordant or not, you know, uh, proportional to the degree of the low blood count. We encourage patients sometimes to, uh, you know, uh, try to maintain some activity, uh, physical activity, exercise, uh, uh, other uh, things to help them with uh, alleviating that fatigue. But it's no doubt that the fatigue is a main symptom of the myelosplastic syndrome. And some of the side effects uh, we encounter are related to the medication. So some of those medications will lead to constipation, some of them to diarrhea, nausea. And it's important sometimes even to be active and treat those upfront, not even wait till they happen. So many times if we know that a medication causes nausea, we will give a patient nausea medication before applying the medication. In general, treatments in MDS are well tolerated. Most of them are based as outpatient. Uh, we have patients that get those treatments and continue to work, uh, but you definitely have to anticipate some of those uh, adverse events and manage them. So the management of symptoms is either geared to the low blood counts that are from the disease, and we try to alleviate those till the treatment you know, works, or you know, there could be sometimes side effects of the medication. So when treatments are started, in, in almost universally, the first month or two, we don't expect much improvement. I, on the contrary, we, you know, I usually try to mention to my patients that things can get worse a little bit before they get better, because many of those medications will lower the blood count at the beginning. But once they kick in, the blood count will improve to a point that the nadir or the drop in the blood count after that is not going to be uh, uh, as, as, as profound, and then the patients will really be feeling much better symptomatically. So it's not uncommon that a patient will need more blood transfusion the first month or two on treatment. We tell the patient to be on the look for fever. If there is more than 100.4 fever, especially if it's persistent a couple of times during the day, to approach the physician uh, or, or the doctor immediately because that's only one of the few situations where patients may need to get IV antibiotics and be in the hospital, and particularly if the neutrophils, the soldiers that fight infection, are less than uh, 500. Uh, so, and then, as I mentioned, you know, for many of the treatments, if they have, you know, uh, other side effects, most of them usually are GI. We try to be proactive managing them. It's important to have blood counts checked usually every week or two uh, at the beginning uh, and assess transfusions. As treatment kicks in and patients get a response, eventually those blood counts and office visits become less often and sometimes we can go up to a month without needing, you know, rechecking of the blood counts. And, and that takes us to our next uh, topic, which is basically in the era of uh, COVID and the modern medicine, we are moving more and more to what we call telehealth. So we offer patients a lot of telehealth or telemedicine where we can actually uh, have a virtual visit to the patients uh, at home and discuss their progress in treatment. Uh, there are different platforms used, such as the Zoom that people have become very familiar with, uh, other platforms. Most of the time, the hospital or the institution will have a call with the patients to set uh, that. Uh, in, in MDS, I find them useful in certain circumstances. For example, in, in my practice, half of the patients drive two to three hours to come to see us because we are a very super specialized center in MDS. But some of them have their local oncology doctors uh, that are doing the day-to-day -day treatment for them. And my, my role is really to assure the big picture, to assure the safety, 
so as long as the patient has the results of the test, they don't necessarily have to travel or drive like two to three hours. And as we said, like nowadays with oral decitabine, you don't have to go to the office, for example, five days in a row. So the telemedicine is taking role. So it's important, obviously, to have that platform set. Uh, many of our patients sometimes are in their late 80s or 90s, so we find some family members helping setting that. Um, but most of those technologies are actually friendly and user-friendly and can be done. It's important when you're having that appointment is try to write down, you know, what happened since the last visit, uh, if patients are getting blood transfusions, to write how many blood transfusions, the date of the last treatment, and if there are any blood tests and results uh, available there to, to have them during the uh, appointment. Many times, you know, the communication or between lab and office gets missed, and I always tell my patients to have that information uh, available for the doctor. And that's another, you know, obviously takes us to the another part of the topic is like, you know, being advocate for yourself and for your disease. Uh, when we meet our patients for the first time, we spend like an hour, an hour and a half explaining the disease. And I know for sure it's so overwhelming for the patient because first there is complicated, sophisticated part of the medicine or the, or the disease we are trying to explain, telling patients, you know, course of the disease and what's going to happen. So it's overwhelming. And I tell my patients, I don't expect you to remember 10% of that, but we try to provide overview. But it's very important to write down some information because as you go through the journey of the disease, you are going to start to learn more and more and become you know, familiar with what we are describing. So it is important to uh, you know, know the type of the disease you have, the diagnosis, the subtype, what's the risk. The most commonly used is this revised IPFS. And then when treatments are recommended, what to expect in terms of side effects, timelines, when to expect the treatment is working. And very useful for your doctors is always to have a, a, a transfusion log. Like if you got blood transfusion, how many of those were given, and you know uh, the frequency and all that stuff. And importantly, obviously, write down all the questions. And I have my patients all the time saying, the minute they are going to go walk out of my clinic, they will have 100 questions. So I tell them, write them down. We'll go through them next time. If there is something urgent, call us back, obviously. Uh, we are trying actually to develop some tools with uh, some, of, some of the foundations uh, where we have like almost an atlas or a book uh, where we actually have a lot of this information written that one can actually even highlight, uh, particular for the patient case, I'm trying actually to work with some almost like an application where, you know, we will record the office visit uh, and then the patient go home, can listen back to it, but also supported with some uh, written material to help. So it's very important really to keep uh, uh, on top of all those uh, things. And uh, I think, again, hopefully, you know, things are improving in MDS. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm hoping that in the next few years we'll have way more options. Uh, we are improving the outcome, the quality of life for our patient, uh, and that's obviously another thing we pay attention to and starting to pay attention in trials where we, you know, uh, are having tools to measure a little bit more objectively the quality of life aspects, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, how they, the symptoms burden from the disease, the emotional aspects of dealing with the disease, or even even sometimes the financial burden of those visits and the medication. And we are trying to move to more oral medications and improving our outcomes uh, for patients with MDS. I think with that, I will stop, and I'll be happy to take any questions at the end of the QA session.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kamrashi. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation, a lot of wonderful material. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Um, and uh, Ms. Bearden is an, un is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And she'll be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Nutrition and hydration are essential in the tolerance to treatment and providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Some patients experience side effects um, from the disease and treatment that can impact your ability to meet your nutrition goals. Some of these side effects may include um, fatigue, a poor appetite, nausea, or vomiting. Everybody's an individual, so um, as you're going through your treatment, be sure to keep the lines of communication open with your healthcare team. Um, the onset of symptoms can vary from patient to patient, and the severity of symptoms can vary from patient to patient. Um, but to let you know, a dietitian is on your healthcare team, and she can, she or he can provide um, you with the specific um, goals that you have um, related to your unique needs. Um, modifications of diet as needed, recommendations based on your side effects. So all questions are very important questions, so please bring all of those to your healthcare team. There are some medications to assist with side effects. Um, also, um, please continue that open communication with your healthcare team. Um, each person is a little bit different in how they experience these side effects. And so oftentimes when we're talking about the diet, keeping a record of what you're eating, if you had a reaction to it or um, something maybe you've drank, um, bring that information forward as well. Um, that'll help the dietitian and your healthcare team better help support you. Hydration is something that we often leave off the list, and, um, and that's because I think it gets overshadowed by monitoring weight and managing some of these side effects. But actually, dehydration can actually make some of the side effects more present, more, more intensified. Things like nausea, fatigue, even things like even making you feel dizzy and, and um, lightheaded. And fluid is very important. Um, identifying fluids that are going to hydrate you are things like water, milk, sports drinks. Um, a general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Um, and so talking with your healthcare team about your unique needs is also very important. In closing, there are several members of your healthcare team dedicated to you and helping you through this, this course of treatment. Know how to reach them and keep the lines of communication open. The sooner the better. Thanks so much for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was wonderful and just a wonderful presentation. Um, thank you so much and lots of good tips for everybody. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services so that you can access them. Um, and there are other organizations as well, but I, I and that will be get, but you'll be getting a survey monkey um, tomorrow. Um, it's um, an evaluation of the program today. And um, in that evaluation, there will be an evaluation. We appreciate you filling it out. But there also will be resources that are mentioned during the program today, and those will be included as well. So in terms of cancer care, and cancer care is a national nonprofit organization. All of our services are free. 
So what are those services? So many people call our HOPE line, which is an 800 number, um, and speak to one of our oncology social workers who are there to help them. People usually start with a specific question, and then our social work staff go through all the services we offer. And for those of you who are listening internationally, um, you can visit our website, www.cancercare.org. You can post a question, um, and we can refer you to a local organization in your country or region that could help you. Um, so please don't hesitate to do that as well. Um, so in terms of um, our free programs, we do offer a, a chance to speak with one of our oncology social workers. We have about 40 of them, so there's lots to go around and to help everybody, and there is no cost for that. We also offer online support groups. Um, we also offer practical financial and co-payment assistance, and that is for people in the United States. However, there are replicants of this internationally, and so basically if you were to email our website, our our oncology staff could recommend organizations within your country or region that could assist you. Um, we also offer these workshops. We also offer something called coping circles, um, and those are um, smaller groups in which people talk about the emotional um, uh, and social impact of coping with cancer. And we also have a number of publications that you can access from our website. So I hope that gives you a thumbnail sketch of our services. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Grace to, to, to bring all of our speakers on board. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you, Dr. Messler. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press start then the number one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. We have a question from one of our online participants for Dr. Kamrahi. Um, question about progression of MDS. What to expect? When do you move from watch and wait to more aggressive treatment? You could address that in a general way, Dr. Kamrahi. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent question because there are different patterns of what we call progression, and this is something we actually in the last recent years have been interested to study even further. So uh, when we talk to progression, it's different things. There is progression to acute myeloid leukemia that Dr. Mesa referred to earlier uh, when the myeloblasts are more than 20%. That actually happens all over in 20, 30% of the patients. So that's one pattern that the disease could be progressing to leukemia. Other pattern that the disease could progress from a lower risk to higher risk. So we start seeing some different risk features. But most often the progression is really in terms of the bone marrow, which is the factory where produced in blood cells. Uh, becoming progressively less efficient in producing blood and seeing more profound cytopenias. So it's not uncommon sometimes at time of diagnosis that patients have really mild low blood count uh, that we just observe. And over time, those counts will start dropping, and that's when we start intervening. Now, in, in terms of clinical trial, we are starting to think of intervening earlier, or even sometimes there are diseases before MDS where we are trying to have trials now to prevent the progression to FRAC MDS. But in practice, most of the time, we really start intervening when the blood counts are low enough that they will probably affect the quality of life or be symptomatic. Uh, so most of the time, the progression is really captured by a, a close monitoring of the blood count. Uh, you know, we, it varies from patient to patient, but usually we check the count every month to three or four months sometimes even. And when we see the count changing, uh, that's usually a clue for us that there could be a progression. 
one important point to keep in mind that the blood counts can fluctuate sometimes. So we don't have to get so anxious if the platelets were like 100 this month and next month 90. That could be really within the normal fluctuation range. But if we see a pattern that the next one is, you know, further down, then that's a sign for us that the disease is progressing in terms of the factory inefficient producing blood count, and we always pause and reevaluate uh, the disease. Um, in many cases, we don't have actually to repeat serial or regular bone marrow. Uh, bone marrow is a bit, you know, inconvenient test, so we don't have to do those regularly unless there is a red flag for us by, you know, symptoms or by noticing something on the blood test, then we go back and evaluate the disease. So in summary, the progression could be progression to leukemia, could be progression to higher risk NDS, or it could be really, in most of the cases, progression in the inefficiency of the blood uh, production, and that's where we start intervening with treatment, or if a patient is on a treatment, we start thinking of the second line of therapy. Excellent, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, great question, great answer. Um, and um, our next question is um, just a question about um, finding a gold star clinic for MDS. Um, I currently have arsenic toxicity bouncing between PCP and oncologists without treatments. Um, if you could comment on this, um, Dr. Kamrashi, in terms of how does one find um, a specialty um, institution um, for um, for MDS? Absolutely. And I think this is a very important question because uh, the way the practice, at least in the United States, you know, there is the community oncology practices, and those are very skilled physicians, uh, uh, you know, that they treat all types of cancers, breast cancer, lung, colon cancer, and MDS. But maybe MDS is not the most common they see, and uh, they are, again, very skillful. They can deliver the standard of care, but they are not super specialized. And I always say the best approach if you have a disease like MDS is a team approach where you have a local oncologist that could deliver some of the treatment skillfully near home, but have somebody that is super specialized, like, you know, Dr. Mesa and myself uh, are super specialized in those diseases. Uh, I don't do anything other than MDS almost, and our center is super specialized. If somebody happens to be close to us, that's good, but again, as I mentioned, many patients drive a few hours. So there are centers specialized. Most of the academic places will have probably more specialized hematologists, oncologists in a disease. Uh, there is a list of the MCI designated cancer centers. Most of them will have, like, again, MDS specialty. Some of the foundations will have a list of uh, MDS excellence centers where you can look around you where is the one. And as we were discussing today with the introduction of telehealth, some of those actually can be done uh, remotely now, where you could have an appointment with an expert online. Uh, we still prefer for our patients sometimes to come at least the first visit because we do thorough evaluation, uh, but, you know, many of those could be done. So I would say, you know, definitely seek an, uh, a second opinion at a center or physician who is specialized in those diseases. Uh, they can, most of them work with your local doctor. You don't have to be traveling back and forth all the time unless there is really a, a specialized evaluation or a clinical trial needed. And those can be found on you know, different you know, venues, uh, such as like any NCI designated center, NDS excellence center. Uh, but that team approach is, is very important. And I do think it, it provides patients with better understanding the disease and a better plan of care at least. 
Excellent. And what we're going to do, and when you get the Survey Monkey, we're going to actually send you um, a link to the National Cancer Institute um, where they list all of the centers of excellence. And there's also an 800 number you can call and the website you can visit to get that information. And then we will list many of the um, organizations that, um, the nonprofit organizations that specifically specify helping people with um, MDS. Um, and we will basically give you a link to them as well. So you'll have those resources. Um, so thank you. Uh, great question, and thank you for that answer. And this is a question, I guess, similar question, but but it's from a, one of our participants. Can arsenic toxicity cause MDS? Uh, I'm not familiar that arsenic toxicity will cause MDS per se. Now, obviously, arsenic can be, you know, exposed to in, in chemicals and different things, but we also use arsenic as a treatment form for other types of leukemia. There's a type of leukemia called APL where we use it. Uh, obviously, it's monitored or that. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, in general, chemical exposure does increase the risk of MDS, whether it's particularly arsenic. I don't know. Benzene uh, is linked to MDS in, in more established fashion. Uh, now, the issue with arsenic toxicity, sometimes it also could mimic MDS. So some of the symptoms some of the low blood count, even sometimes some of the changes yeah. in the bone marrow can look like MDS and not necessarily be MDS. Uh, so it's important yeah. to try to tease that out. Uh, but I'm not familiar exactly that arsenic per se is going to be a cause to M uh, for MDS unless, again, there was some stem cell damage and with further chemical exposure we got second hit and evolved. But definitely some of the symptoms and manifestations of you know toxicity can mimic and look like MDS. Yeah. Excellent. So the importance of getting a, an appropriate diagnosis up front is what you're saying then, Dr. Um, Komrahi, is that correct? Right. Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you. And, um, and then this will be our last question. Um, what factor does age take in the selection of treatments for MDS? Right. Yeah, and that's a very excellent question. So, uh, Obviously, as we said, the, the, the median age or the average age for MDS is really early 70s. So many of our patients are in their 70s. And the, the, the way we think of this, at least, is, is really age is, is function. And sometimes we joke, the older we get ourselves, we extend the definition of older to, 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 to be around our age. Uh, but in, in reality, obviously, uh, Age is function. So there are two parts we look at: the comorbidity, which is presence of like severe heart disease. Somebody have like you know COPD, lung disease, liver disease. Kidneys are not functioning well. Those comorbidities can dictate a lot sometimes the choices of therapy. Then the other thing is what we call frailty. So like sometimes you know I will see two patients on books. They look the same. You walk into the room and the patient is really weak. Cannot get from the chair to the examining table, table, they are failed. They cannot have their daily activities even performed. If it was from the disease, that's different. So if somebody obviously is anemic, they are not going to be tired. But if that was their background, uh, then that's a challenge. So age is really defined by other medical problems and how functional of the performance status of the patient. Uh, so, uh, so we try not really to discriminate treatment based on that. And there is benefit of treatment even you know, regardless of the age. And that's one of the 
myth we try to find that, you know, we should not harm somebody in their 90 with treatment. That's not true. Most of the studies have shown actually improvement in the quality of life, extension of survival based on treatment. Obviously, you have to choose wisely. You cannot treat somebody in their 90s with a treatment that would be very intensive, uh, but a treatment is better. Uh, now, the only curative option we have for MDS is like stem plant. In the past, we never did them above age of 55, then 60, 65. Now we extend those easily till age of 75, uh, but based, again, on, on that definition, based on comorbidities and functional status. After the age of 75, we really hand-select patients that are in excellent performance because also the, the gain of survival or the gain or the benefits from this procedure, the margin of that becomes very limited after the age of 75. Those are intensive procedures where patients stay in the hospital for a month. It takes a year or two of quality of life to get back to normal. So as we advance in age, that margin of benefit becomes limited. But we really do not distinguish or discriminate based on age. Many of the studies that I mentioned, majority of the patients are in their 70s. Uh, there is patients even in their 80s or 90s getting on those clinical trials. Thank you. I, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Kamrahi. That was really, these were, they were incredible questions, but also incredible answers by you. And although we've done this program before, this has been an outstanding program. And I, I really want to thank you very much for um, for for your really wonderful um, answers to all these questions, and um, and I want to thank our participants for asking such great questions. In wrapping up, I do want to say that for those of you who got to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who um, you know are thinking of a question you'd like to ask, we'd like you to take everything you learned from today's program and take it back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best. And they actually, um, they you know, they know they are they know you the best, and they actually know all about you. They have all your medical records, and so take what you learned today. See your if you asked a question today, take your question as a kind of role play to go back to your treating healthcare team. And as you can see from Dr. Kamrashi, every question you asked is a great question, and that is the case. There is no question that isn't a great question. If you don't understand something, ask it. Ask it over and over again until you get the answer that you need. It's very important. These are things that you worry about, and it's important to get your healthcare team on board. Also, uh, Dr. Kamrashi made a point of saying, be sure you know how to reach your healthcare team on evenings and weekends, holidays, um, and so that's often a time, it seems that people often run into difficulty at night or on weekends or on a holiday time. So please um, be sure you know that who's the covering doctors, uh, how to reach them, um, because that's when you really want to get to someone. That those are often times when you need to call someone. Um, also, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with um, MDS or with any type of cancer, I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support and we're here to help you. And you will be getting a link to many different, in addition to the other evaluation you're going to be getting, you're also going to be getting a link to many other organizations in addition to Cancer Care that you can contact um, for um, information and incredible information. We don't want you going to just just Googling any, uh, any website for this. We want you to go to websites that we recommend that we know the information there is accurate. That's very important to get accurate information. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
Thank you, Dr. Lemesner. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.